0: This is the Bill Kelly
1: Show podcast. The story that everybody's talking about, and and with good reason, especially here in the Hamilton area, is uh, the announcement uh, by uh, Donald Trump that he is going to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum. And uh, significant tariffs, we're told. Now, we don't have all the details, but there's an awful lot of speculation. He says the details are going to be announced sometime next week. Uh, And he's been tweeting about this, and uh, he met with the the steel industry. And, uh, well, he seems pretty intent that this is what he's going to do.
2: Steel and aluminum, we'll see a lot of good things happen. We're going to have new jobs popping up. We're going to have much more vibrant companies. And then the rest is going to be up to management to make them truly great.
1: Well, that's uh, Donald Trump's take on this. Uh, Other people have different takes. Even the Wall Street Journal, the conservative Wall Street Journal, says that uh, if he imposes these tariffs, it's going to penalize American workers. The United Auto Workers have said the same thing. As a matter of fact, the auto industry in the United States is is encouraging Trump to not do this. There's thought of trade war now with China and the European nation, Germany, and of course Canada. And if Canada's going to be involved, and the speculation seems to be that it will be, that's going to have an impact on this economy. You know, Stelco and ArcelorMittal Fasco, of course, are looking at this with great interest. So what's going to happen? What do we do about this? Tony Valeri is the Vice President of Corporate Affairs with Arsene de Fasco, DeFasco. He joins us on the Bill Kelly show to talk about this. Morning, Tony. How are you today? Morning, Bill. Very
2: did, good. Thanks did, for having me on.
1: Did you sleep well last night? <laughs> yes, I
2: did.
1: <laughs> here, listen, let's let's get into this and the implications of this. This is kind of scary stuff. And and I know that here in Hamilton we were always concerned about this. You know, we were watching with the NAFTA negotiations and saying, well, look at that's gonna have an impact on steel. And we knew there was a clause in that NAFTA deal that does give the President of the United States uh, some leeway when it comes to instituting things like tariffs. Nobody ever thought he was going to do this, but uh, it looks like our worst nightmare may be coming true here.
2: Well, uh, yeah, and I think, you know, at the top of your show, as you were talking about uh, about this particular uh, announcement that the, uh, the President made yesterday, essentially what he said was, uh, I'm going to announce something next week, and uh, he indicated what... He was, uh, going to announce. But, you know, overnight, I mean, if it, following the media reports overnight, there was, been, there has been a significant number of, uh, of, uh, senators and, uh, congressmen, uh, from the Republican Party, uh, asking the president to reconsider. So, you know, from our perspective, uh, we, as you said, we don't have all the details. Um, where are you know we continue to remain focused on conveying to the canadian government that you know they continue to work their back channels they continue to make the representations that canada should be exempted from the two thirty two and and i think you know it lost in all of this Although we keep trying to resurrect the the uh, the, the perspective is that there, we need to differentiate between fair and unfair trade, and I th- and I think with the president uh, president suggesting yesterday uh, that tariff of 25 percent across the board. Um, you've got a lot of people sitting back saying, uh, you know, listen, Canada is not the problem. Uh, you know, we're definitely, we're not the security risk for sure, which is the underpinning of, of the 232. We're, we're, we're partners in NORAD, we're partners in NATO. So it's not a security issue. If the issue is unfair trade, subsidized steel being shipped into, into NAFTA, into North America, that a t- more targeted approach against those countries that are actually bending uh, the, the trade rules uh, seems more appropriate than an
1: approach that uh, that takes a broad brush. Tony, this has got to be a very frustrating exercise. Well, for you in particular, I mean, even in your past life in, in politics, I mean, you've negotiated with the high and the mighty on a number of different issues like this, and you understand the art of compromise and trying to find deals, and, and you did that quite well in your political life, and you're doing it now with Arcelino de Fasco. But you've got a guy in the White House right now that just doesn't seem to let the facts get in the way of a, of a good <laughs> rant. I mean, because his own people are telling him what you just said, and it doesn't seem to, to re- resonate with this guy.
2: Well, that well, that's right. In in, in fact, if you think of uh, you know steel in particular, and and the context, uh, you know the balance of steel trade between Canada and United States over you know in 2016 there was over 10 million metric tons of, of steel worth over eleven billion dollars traded between our two countries uh... you know we shipped uh... to the united states uh... about five point four million metric tons the u.s. shipping back into canada just under that uh bit higher valued steel, but just under that in terms of the volume. I mean, we are essentially in balance. The the supply chains are very much integrated. On the automotive side, you've got parts crossing the border seven, eight times before final assembly. Um, it's a win-win for both of our countries in terms of keeping the borders open and ensuring that there's an efficient flow of trade. It supports a lot of jobs. It supports a lot of investment and you know those are the facts and and uh but this president seems to as you say uh you know not allow facts to get in the way so it is frustrating but uh, but bill as you know uh you know we, we're not we're not going to just sit back we're continuing to work with our canadian government and position us to uh, ask for that exemption if the if the exemption does not come through uh... then you know uh... canada needs to take some action on two fronts one there's obviously the the issue of what do you do now is there is there a retaliation uh... against the united states for this uh... not where anybody wants to go i don't think that's that's the that's the answer but you may be forced into that so if there's a twenty five percent tariff on canadian steel going into the united states uh, you know, you may see the, a similar tariff for U.S. steel coming into Canada, and that will certainly uh, impact the United States. But the issue, irrespective of whether Canada is exempted or not, will be how do we deal with the diversion with 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 the 13 or so million metric tons of steel that, in fact, the U.S. Uh, is trying to displace through this 232 action. Uh, you know even a small percentage even if we were to get uh... you know twenty percent of of that uh, Thirteen plus million metric tons of steel that that the U.S. is looking to divert coming into Canada, it will adversely impact our markets. So the Canadian government needs to put in place uh, measures to ensure that we are not uh, impacted by the diversion of this large supply of steel that will be shut out of the United States.
1: You know, it's it's I think noteworthy to talk a little bit about tariffs and how they work uh, in in a situation like this, Tony, and which is one of the other head scratchers about what Trump is actually suggesting wants to do here. Because if he imposes these tariffs, it's the American companies that pay the tariff. It's not the Canadian government. It's not our, it's, it's stuff that goes across the border. And and the, the American Manufacturing Association has already chimed in on this, and they said it's going to raise prices. If you do that, automobiles are going to cost more in the United States. Farm equipment's going to cost more in the United States. Trucks are going to cost more. He, he doesn't seem to understand the ramifications of something like this
2: right and 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 I think again I, I think there's a differentiation between unfairly traded steel and fairly traded steel if you 've got dumped and subsidized steel coming into your market you're displacing domestic employment domestic investment you you know Canadian companies US companies cannot compete with a state subsidized uh company whether it's China or whether it's 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 another country so we have measures and we have ways of dealing on a very targeted basis with those countries that are uh you know that are breaking uh you know agreed to trade rules and and that makes for a fine uh, you know strong and efficient uh... market the issue here is that if you are, you know, also uh impacting the fairly traded steel in in this case and aluminum, then you are going to see distortions in the market, you are going to see distortions in the supply chain. There will be ramifications downstream. And 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 ultimately uh you know we'll have to assess what that impact is. But our preference certainly is to just to go back to my earlier point that we're exempted. We focus on a very targeted basis on those countries that are in fact dumping Steel into NAFTA, subsidizing steel and then shipping it into NAFTA and distorting a competitive market.
1: Obviously, this is going to have an impact on, on your business and on this economy. Uh, and I mentioned uh, NAFTA a couple of minutes ago. Is is there an ongoing dialogue, Tony, between uh, companies like ArcelorMittal, DeFasco, and, and the Canadian government and the negotiating team uh, with uh, Ms. Freeland, of course, and and the work that's going on there? Is there a communication line there so you you're up to date on what's going on and, and what may be on the table?
2: well the the Government of canada has has consistently uh, outreached to uh, to different sectors to you know inform us of what it, what you know, what it, what's the state of play, you know potentially what are the issues that that are coming to the table, asking how they would impact. Uh, different sectors, so the lines of communication are open with respect to the negotiating team. Steve Verhul has been very effective in making sure that uh, that uh, industry is aware of of the positioning and asking for input. So, from that perspective, I think uh, you know the lines lines of communication are open, and and we are continuing to dialogue with uh, with our negotiators. Obviously, the frustration is the disconnect between what seems to be uh, the disconnect between the negotiators negotiators at the table uh and and the US administration and so uh it's very difficult i think to see movement uh in 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 a, in an agreement if the folks uh, sitting at the table are willing to entertain potential proposals but then you know those proposals uh, don't uh, don't see the light of day once they leave that table that's a very frustrating uh experience for folks uh for the negotiators and so that's why we're seeing the delay and and, and we continue to see uh, little progress
1: well, and to that point, I mean that's that's why I think we need to connect the dots here. I mean, if if Trump does move forward with this tariff idea, that's that's going to throw a monkey wrench into the NAFTA negotiations. It has to.
2: Well, yeah. While, while it's not specifically, uh, you know, tied to ne- to the NAFTA negotiations, all of you know all of this banter back and forth, you know. Is going to impact discussions between countries. So, how that will ultimately impact NAFTA, I think that's you know I think people are sitting back, like you said, scratching their head, saying, so you know what what do we have left here at the, at the end of this uh, discussion and this negotiation on uh, on the 232, and how does it impact NAFTA? How does it impact you know our broader relationships? How does it impact our relationship with NORAD, NATO? I mean, this is this ultimately will be bigger than. Just the 232. This really speaks to to the Canadian-U.S. relationship and and how we need to get beyond this to ensure that we're we're ultimately ensuring that our economies, given the fact we're so economically integrated as a result of NAFTA over these years, uh, we need to ensure that we can continue to have these borders uh, open uh, and have this two-way flow of steel and product uh, so that our employees, uh, sectors, uh, the, the steel industry and other industries can continue to compete and continue to compete effectively and know that, that uh, when the borders are open and when we can compete fairly, uh, Canadian companies uh, uh,
1: do very well. U.S. companies were quick to react to this, and a number of them have already commented about this. They Already mentioned the steel workers and and others. Uh, what's your position uh, as uh, as a, uh, somebody who's going to be impacted by this? I mean, it's out there right now. We don't know the details, and and we don't even know if Canada's going to be involved. Although we know what the speculation is. Uh, do you sit back and wait until you get the details, or you, do you have to be more proactive at this stage?
2: Well, we we, we need to we need to. Get the details. I mean, we need to sit back and get the details. At the moment, uh, you know, we, you know, it's all speculation, as you said. So, so you kind of think through what you know what could be uh, potential implications. But you really need to understand uh, what what ultimately uh, you know the decision is, and work very closely with with the Canadian government uh, in our case to ensure uh, that we're able to deal with diversion. The one thing that's absolutely certain here is that. Whether Canada is in or not on this 232 action, uh, that we expect uh, there there will be diversion if countries are shut out of the United States, and Canada needs to be very prepared to deal with that diversion. That will impact our market, and that will impact Canadian companies. Uh, as I said, that, that line of communication is open with the Canadian government, and we continue to work with them to ensure that we've got the right solution for the Canadian market and Canadian steel companies as a result of the decision by the president ultimately uh, next week.
1: Yeah, that's the double whammy here, isn't it? I mean, even if Canada were to gain an exemption, uh, that doesn't preclude China or others from dumping steel or trying to dump steel into this market to try to get rid of their product. And that's, that's just as problematic
2: that's problematic. I mean, you know, I, I mean, for, with respect to access to the United States, I mean, you know, if there's a 25% duty, then obviously we're impacted through pricing competitiveness. Uh, but, but the issue of, um, you know, even if, as I said earlier, a portion of that 13 plus million metric tons of steel being redirected to Canada and Canada seeing an import surge uh, will have an impact on the Canadian market and the Canadian government needs to be very prepared and proactive in ensuring that we don't uh, we don't experience that uh, redirection of, of steel coming into Canada.
1: Well, fingers crossed. Hopefully, things are going to work out for us. I guess we'll find out sometime next week. Tony, thanks, as always, for uh, the clarification on this. Appreciate the time today.
2: Thank you very much, Bill.
1: Tony Valeri, Vice President of Corporate Affairs at ArcelorMittal, Fasco.
2: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show,
1: weekdays from 9 to noon
2: on AM 900 CHML.
1: Very important uh, topic, obviously, talking about the proposed tariffs that uh, Donald Trump is talking about imposing on steel and aluminum, which is obviously going to have an impact on Hamilton. We heard from Tony Valeri from Marcel Middle to Fasco in the last segment of the program. Uh, What about the local economy and the impact that would have? Well, Keenan Loomis, president and CEO, of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce joins us here in studio to talk about this. Uh, thanks for coming in. Good to see you again today. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, good to uh, see you. Let's, this, this had to have knocked you over yesterday when you heard this. Yeah, this was crazy.
0: Um, no expectation that this was coming, uh, even in the morning. And um, we we knew that Trump had to respond to his report that was uh, submitted to him by the Department of Commerce. It uh, required him to respond by April, but um, you know, yesterday was March 1st, and... Uh, but uh, I guess because everybody from the industry was gathered, he decided he wanted to make a big splash. And it was crazy if you if you listen to the behind the scenes backing and forth thing internally in the White House yesterday uh, and, and all the chaos that uh, ensued um, as a result of this. Uh, just David Frum. We were talking about David Frum's yeah. article from The Atlantic that kind of outlined a little bit of that. It, it's it's uh, really uh, amazing and uh, quite uh, impetuous of him to uh, to do what he did yesterday, and hopefully Canada can receive an, ex- an exemption uh, within the next week. But uh, they are making policy on the
1: fly in Washington right now. But the concern, even if that happens, Keenan, as we were just discussing with Tony Valeri from uh, Arsenal Middle DeFasco. Even if Canada gets an exemption, and that seems unlikely, but if that were to happen, there's still a concern about the company or the countries that aren't exempted dumping steel in here, which is going to have an adverse effect on our economy. Yeah, so there's something like 13 million tons of steel yeah. that are
0: going to be looking for a home, and uh, we we've already been very concerned about uh, non-market steel coming into Canada. It's uh, something that we've been talking about for years uh, and advocating for within uh, the our you know chamber networks provincially and, and federally and uh and, and so you know there is a, a certain part of this um you know we we would like for the tariffs to be placed on uh other actors uh other countries in uh the world that are dumping uh steel into north america but uh canada uh, getting caught up into this would be really detrimental to, to the us it would be a huge uh tax um,
1: on uh, just regular consumers within the U.S., but the bad guy here, if there is one in this trade war, is China. It's it's not Canada, I, and I know that Trump has continually tried to get his point across that that you know Canada has the the, the advantage of us. I mean, he even characterized Canadian trade uh, the other day before he started on this tariff rant uh, that uh, that we continually hose the Americans when it comes to trade deals, and that's going to stop right here and now. Which lends me to believe that he's not going to give us an exemption in this. Well, I-
0: again, we've been talking about China and, and other uh, countries that haven't acted properly, um, that are non-market economies in that you know they don't adhere to the same labor standards. They don't adhere to the same environmental standards. Um, there's uh, state ownership uh, in, involved in many of these companies, and they just keep producing steel. And, and it's led to a glut in the market. And um, so we've, again, been raising the uh, the flag on this for a really long time. Um, yeah, the, the, it, it makes no sense to go after Canada because we are completely different. We are, it's, it's completely fair trade. Um, so again, you know, adhering to the highest of, of labor and environmental standards, it's uh, almost completely balanced. We bring in as much uh, U.S. steel into Canada as Canada, is, uh, or as the U.S. brings uh, Canadian steel into uh, its market. And it's fully integrated, fully integrated within the supply chain. And that's where the, the major disruptions are going to occur. And there may be certain industries in the United States um, that are cheering this, uh, this announcement. Not uh, from that yesterday. Many. Uh, But not that many. Only like a couple companies, uh, to be honest. Well, U.S. Steel being one of them. U.S. Steel being one of them. And and, and they'll obviously be most directly impacted. But the automobile industry is, is up in arms. Um, you know canned goods. Uh, you know your 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 Bud Light uh, in the U.S. is is now going up as a result of uh, putting a slapping a tariff on aluminum. So all of a sudden, Canadian steel has lost the competitive advantage that it had um, because the Canadian dollar is is lower than the U.S. dollar. And uh, obviously, we're concerned. There's going to be tens of thousands of jobs in Hamilton that are now more insecure as a result of yesterday.
1: What I can't understand here, and this is part of the job of chamber, of course, is this integration with the government and this dialogue with the government is, is the Commerce Secretary uh, is supposed to have a broad-based look at economic issues, not specifically to this one, to this one, to this one, as the Chamber does uh, with your advocacy, yet it's, it's the Commerce Secretary that's saying, let's give U.S. Steel a big break here and put these tariffs on, but at the, the, the very moment that they said this, the United Auto Workers, uh, the car manufacturers, uh, other unions and other places I said, don't do this. It's going to kill us. And you saw the Wall Street Journal this morning, and there isn't a publication more conservative than the Wall Street Journal. They say this is going to punish American workers. They didn't even care about what's happening in Canada. It's the American economy that's going to be adversely affected. Why, why doesn't he get that? Well, these these actions have been advocated for by,
0: again, certain actors within uh, the steel industry for a really long time. And, and other presidents have uh, have talked about doing this. George Bush did. Um, at uh, one point, but then had to scale back because of the impacts um, that were being felt in in the U.S. economy. So we've done this before; it's proved to be a foolish move in the past. Um, and the Commerce Secretary uh, said in their report, Canada is actually not part of the problem and, and really should be exempt from uh, any actions that uh the president may wish to uh undertake against uh other non-market economies and we've heard uh other people within his administration as well that uh, are advocating against ex- exactly what he announced yesterday so again we're hoping that uh with a full court press from our federal government certainly they should be acting i, I hope that the prime minister has been on the phone with the president already if not uh, i hope it's in the calendar uh... and very soon but we have a week to uh... To, to you know press our case and and obviously uh... hope that other industries within the u.s. are going to be able to bend the ear of the president that the u.s. chamber of commerce will be able to uh... Uh, help him understand how uh, foolish an action this is, as well.
1: You know the comments I got from the uh, from the auto workers, and and frank, frankly from the automakers, uh, I found were rather enlightening. Uh, because their suggestion was that look at the U.S. steel industry can't supply all the steel that they need. No, they cannot. They still need Canadian steel. They still mm-hmm. need imported steel. And, and as a result, they're concerned right now, and you just mentioned about, you know, the aluminum tariff, uh, the price of beer is going to go up in the States because, I mean, the cost of aluminum yeah. is going to go up. Cars, the price of cars will go up. The price of farm machinery is going to go up. I mean, they, I mean, somebody here has to connect the dots and tell the president, you understand what you're doing here? The
0: the nature of advanced manufacturing is that uh, these companies have continually innovated constantly over over time to continue to re, to compete. Uh, and again, we have uh, really tough market forces uh, competing against uh, you know domestic steel here in Canada. And DeFasco has become so specialized in in particular verticals. And uh, the point is that there's, they've become so good at it that actually nobody else does that. Nobody else can supply the same high quality steel that DeFasco supplies into the auto industry and into the uh, the food sector within the U.S. So it's going to be very difficult for the car companies now to be able to procure. The uh, steel
1: domestically that they need to continue their operations because some of it's still going to come across and and again as I was mentioning with Tony uh, the, the the nature of tariffs uh, when when you install a tariff like that it's on goods that are going into the country it's not ArcelorMittal Fasco that's going to pay the tariff it's the it's the companies it's the auto manufacturers that will pay the tariff to bring that steel in which is going to jack the price up
0: well and what we've what we've warned against is you know. Th- Canada is going to have to respond. Already, we've seen that Europe sure. is going to be responding. So there's going to be retaliatory measures, um, probably. And uh, so again, that will that will mean that the uh, six um, million tons or so of U.S. steel coming into Canada is also going to be tariffed. Um, and it's just going to
1: escalate. And so, well, it, and it spreads, Keenan. The yeah. thing is, when you start getting into a trade war, and I saw his tweet, Trump's tweet earlier today. Say trade wars are great. How moronic is that? It's not just steel that's going to be impacted. It could be the dairy industry. It could be softwood lumber. It could be meat, uh, back and forth like this. And, you know, where do you draw the line? Well,
0: so DeFasco procures about a billion dollars in iron ore and coal from the U.S. You know, so they they, obviously, those industries are going to be impacted as well. And so, and, and probably Canada's going to have to retaliate by slapping tariffs on those, uh, making uh, DeFasco's inputs uh, cost even more. So, yeah, you're right. It, it has a, a profound ripple effect across many, many industries. And that's the point. And, and that's why we shouldn't be making policy on the fly or, you know, based on the the
1: whim or mood of uh, one person. You, uh, as a chamber here in Hamilton, are of course are pretty proactive on this. I know that you're in constant dialogue, not just with chambers around Ontario or for Canada for that matter, but you cut kind across of the border an awful lot. And there is that dialogue that goes back yeah. and forth. What's, what's the role of the chamber in a situation like this? Well, so
0: I did a whole bunch of media yesterday. So, you know, <laughs> being able to provide the, uh, the local uh, context and, and how specifically it's going to impact us and, 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 and people uh... you know here in our region um, we raised the alarm bells with the OCC with the CCC they've been pressing the um, the Canadian government to act we have been doing a lot of um, a lot of dialogue with other chambers within the u.s um, you know a state-to-state type dialogue because there's the whole by American mm-hmm. uh, issue that's popping up in, in various states and New York uh, just implemented uh, by American it goes into effect in uh, on April 1st and we had been working with uh, the Buffalo Niagara partnership to advocate against doing that because the Buffalo Niagara partnership understands that it's going to cut both ways that Ontario is going to have to respond and we don't want to get into a trade war and unfortunately their advocacy uh, you know didn't uh, win the day but uh, there is a lot of dialogue going on uh, among the business community on this and we just hope that eventually the the volume um, and becomes too cacophonous for uh, for anybody to ignore
1: those border towns are key to this uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, you, obviously, there's the Niagara connection that you just mentioned, and that stretches all the way over to Hamilton. I was down in Windsor a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to some of the folks in the hotel there, and they're concerned about mm-hmm. it. I mean, you know, just a couple of hundred yards across the river there is, is the city of Detroit, and there's there's trade that goes back and forth. And they said we don't want barriers up; it's going to hurt both cities. And uh, they just that's that's a message that doesn't seem to make it to Washington. No, it doesn't, and so the advocacy within the Ontario Chamber
0: uh, and Canadian Chamber community has come specifically from Hamilton, uh, Windsor, and Sault Ste. Marie. So, uh, two border towns that are going to uh, definitely feel the the impacts uh, greatly. And and you're right. I mean, this was the whole purpose of NAFTA, um, basically to make it seamless uh, to uh, allow goods to come across the border. Uh, I think that you know the. The um, the rule of thumb is that a car manufactured in North America crosses the border something like eight times, uh, you know, with all the various parts and inputs and all that. And so that that's the point is that this is going to disrupt that um, and uh, industries are going to uh, have to adjust and it will take a long time and prices, consumer prices will go up and
1: uh yeah, so again, profound effects throughout the integrated economies but it's 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 an insular economy that he seems to be advocating for theory I, I guess he seems to be under the impression that uh, that everything should be manufactured and sold in America, and he doesn't much care for foreign trade it's a it's a rather nineteenth century approach to economics
0: yeah well it's it's certainly not where we've uh been evolving over the last number of decades uh under neoliberal trade rules and um, and we've adjusted really well and, and become highly integrated. I I agree with you know supporting local where we can, procuring local where we can, um, and making sure that we continue to uh, make things here in North America. I think it's really important. I I agree when he said you don't have a country if you don't have a steel industry. Well, you know the the whole problem is though he's trying to completely undermine and, and decimate ours, and so we won't become we won't be a a, a real country. So that's. That's a certainly a concern, and um, again, we just want to make sure that uh, that the there are very minimal impacts um, with regards to this issue, and and hope that over the next week,
1: cooler heads prevail. We got to put this in context as well, though, Keena. That this is this is uh, Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, that actually made these recommendations. I mean, this didn't just come out of Trump's head, uh, and we've read those, and they're pretty significant tariffs that he was talking about as options at that stage. Mm-hmm. Would the the smarter strategy, given the fact that that the the dumping seems to be the major issue here, uh, for the United States and Canada to work collectively to try to find a solution to this? Uh, that that I would think would should have been part of the NAFTA negotiations instead of building up a wall across the forty ninth parallel. I'd be sitting down at the table with Canadians and saying, "Look at, there's that bad guy's over there," and because the Canadian economy is already being negatively impacted by dumping steel yeah. from from China, we so we have a common problem here, and and he's basically he's dividing instead of, of trying to collaborate here. Well, that's exactly what we've been
0: advocating for for years. Again, when we when we started to draw attention to this problem of of dump steel coming into Canada in order to get into the U.S. market, we knew that. We would have to have regulatory harmonization with the U.S. on this particular issue and be able to enforce uh, our, our, our borders and, and make sure that we're able to uh, catch uh, ille- illegally dumped steel coming into the country because that's going to make every single shipment coming from Canada into the U.S., um, uh, is going to be it's going to be more highly scrutinized, thus thickening the border, thus uh, impacting trade and, and the integrated supply chain. So that is exactly what we've been advocating for. Um, we've drawn up some policies that have been uh, passed at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce level, and so we have been pressing the federal government for that. Uh, in fact, it did lead to a little bit of movement uh, last year. The uh, Canada Border Services did get some extra authority to be able to uh, enforce against us but the, no resources have been put into um, uh, Border Patrol to be able to uh, actually implement those new powers so that's what we're definitely gonna have to work on uh, as a federal government it's it's half of the equation here not only are we worried about the access to the US market but then we we have to do something proactive uh, to um, have some uh, responses that uh, will pop up as a result of this diverted seal.
1: I was just asking uh, Tony Valeri from Marshal Vidal DeFasco. You know, do you do you wait until you get all the details? And of course, obviously, they have to get uh, the, the details on the, and a clearer picture as to what's going on. But uh, but you've been working the phones. You've been proactive on this since you heard this.
0: Yeah, and 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 again, it's just a matter of turning up the volume and hoping that you know that we've heard that. A <laughs> you know, he, Trump goes wherever the la- the last person he's talked to uh, tells him to go, and so hopefully, <laughs> ultimately, the last person on this issue that uh, gets to him before the official announcement is
1: made will be a voice of reason. But there's going to be, and I would think, because uh, I've had a number of people say, "Well, what's the Congress going to do in this?" Uh, I, I hope those in, in areas uh, outside of uh, the steel industry are going to be loud about this and 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 talk about the impact that it could have. I mean, this may play pretty well in Pittsburgh today, and you know, at, at U.S. Steel's headquarters, but over in Detroit in Michigan, in Ohio, uh, and frankly in Pennsylvania, because there are car manufacturing plants there that are going to be impacted by this. Those are the people that need to speak up at this stage. We know that Canada has a lot of advocates on Capitol Hill
0: um, and in governors' mansions across the United States. So... Again, that's where we're hoping that uh, pressure can can come down on the Trump administration over the next week uh, so that he will be able to see that uh, this is completely unpopular and will be uh, very, very uh, injurious to
1: the U.S. market. Kenan Loomis, uh, President CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks, well, Bill. Uh, fingers crossed, anyway. Yeah. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. What are we going to do with the potholes? Now, we told you this week about the debate that went on at City Council on Wednesday about uh, the special money that was going to be allocated for Main Street West right outside the radio station here and all the way down to McMaster University. Uh, I've still got a problem with the funding issue for that, but we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But what about the rest of the city? Uh, Because, I mean, there are potholes all over the place. I mean, Main West, yeah, is is terrible, but so is Parkdale, so is Burlington Street, uh, so are a number of streets up on the mountain in Ancaster. I mean, it's going on every place. Would you pay extra? Would you would you pay a surcharge? I mean, if if council came back and said, it we're going to tax everybody an extra $100 to make sure that we can look after this stuff, would you be okay with that? We'll get your thoughts on that in a couple of minutes. I, I threw that out there a little while ago, and I already got some email and uh, Twitter response to this. Uh, Greg says, I'd pay to go back in time and actually maintain the roads. Pothole situation shouldn't be a surprise. The roads were in terrible shape before winter. Uh, thanks, Greg. And reach us, of course, on Twitter at Kelly, and, of course, on uh, on email bkelly900chml.com I want to bring Donna Skelly into the conversation uh, the city councilor for ward 7 about the uh, the pothole situation Donna thank you for the time I know I'm pulling you out of a budget session we'll uh, try to get this uh, on as quickly as possible hi, hi.
3: go ahead hi
1: okay listen let's let's first of all I want to get into the, to to the the pothole situation itself now this is something that the council debates every spring we get that but I mean here we are at the end of february well it's march now but when this really came to a head, uh, how does the city accommodate something like this? I mean, you've got budget pressures already, and all of a sudden you get this extra added cost.
3: Well, is it really an extra added cost? I understand this is one of the worst years, but whether it's potholes or whether we have flooding or whether we have uh, problems with no rain or, you know, you name it, there will be um, weather. Mother Nature is, can be nasty, and she's not always predictable. And whether it's that or something else, a housing crisis, um, uh, opioid crisis, we're always going to be facing emergencies. The problem is we don't plan for and, and maintain our roads as it is now. And I think if we had, and I think it was Greg that sent you an email. Yes. I agree with him. We should be prioritizing our infrastructure. And I think most people in this city agree And we're not. And one of the reasons the potholes are so bad is the roads are so bad. You can't um, shave and pave constantly. We have to get back to addressing what is a crisis in this city. We spend money where we shouldn't be spending money. We waste money. We're not frugal. Now there's a suggestion that we go to taxpayers and say, guys, bail us out. We need more money to do what we should have been doing all along. I think it's outrageous.
1: Well, then let's talk about what possible solutions there will be, and 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 the one that comes back to me uh, because it's the one I I uh, was quite upset about is it was what Councillor Johnson and Ward one said is that look at he's got this one point seven million dollar fund and he doesn't want to spend year, it on roads he doesn't want to spend year. it on roads yeah one point seven million every year
3: and and this is not I'm not trying to pick on on Councillor Johnson but when no because he's he not admit, the only one that does that no but he has admitted that in this term, so for four years, not one penny of that funding, so we're talking $6.8 million, has gone towards roads. Think about it. It's outrageous. We also have people spending money on, I know participatory budgeting is a a program that they've adopted, and I believe wards one and two, but they're paying people. To actually uh, engage with residents and determine what where this funding should be spent,
1: uh, but that's, that's that's lunacy, Donna.
3: I know it is. Look at I, here's, You know heard, what? First of all,
1: you know now this predated your time on council, but I mean, you know, as one of the inner city wards in Ward Seven, uh, you, you're, of course, you get the money as, as well as the other yes. s- seven uh, wards in the city that uh, in the inner city. Uh, the whole intent of this, and I know you've seen the motion that was passed back then, was for infrastructure needs within those wards. That's not supposed to be, you know, to spend as they wish. This is not. This is not free money. Uh, no. And. and and you know, and
3: it's not, uh, it's not a pot to be used to help um, gain votes for re-election either. And I look at some of the projects, and I think this is outrageous. This is not city infrastructure. You know, from the fund, and, and the Westdale Theatre got two hundred or $250,000. That's not city infrastructure. And I don't think it's appropriate. And I think we have to go back to where we are supposed to be spending the money, what it's supposed to be used for. Now, in all fairness, I have spent millions on roads, on curbs, on sidewalks. I've also spent money on um, updating Inch Park for the Challenger baseball program. Some people might not agree with that, but it's widening dugouts so wheelchairs can access the, the um the field. No that's Things listen,
1: like- you're bang on with that. I tried to get that when I was on council and that's out over twelve years ago. Yeah. And I and couldn't get any money for it at that time when the, we, we finally moved that program over there. That's and that's infrastructure. That's fine. I get that part of it. And but and listen I I it- don't mind the Westdale project. I think it's a wonderful project. But there are supposed to be other avenues to tap into for this. If if everybody in in Wards one through eight could come back, come back and say, you know what, everything's good. The roads are in great shape here. Most of the infrastructure is all fine. Now we've got some extra. Yeah, then have your participatory budgeting and say, okay, where do you think we should spend this? But you have a priority here.
3: I agree. I agree, and I don't know what happened and how it went off, fell off the rails. I mean, some of the things that we're spending money on is outrageous. And then to turn around and say, let's ask taxpayers now to bail us out with an emergency fund with an increase to their taxes. And believe me, Bill... I hear it constantly from people. They are fed up with being nickel and dimed, paying high taxes, and not getting their money's worth. And this is a basic need in the city of Hamilton, good roads. That is a priority, and we have failed miserably.
1: I I remember a discussion I had with you, this was I guess back in the summertime, maybe it was the spring, we were talking about Upper James and some of the work that needed to be done, and and you mentioned just offhandedly that, yeah, we're going to do this with some of the money that you get, and I thought, well, that's great, that's what it's for, what a great idea, and now you can move forward on that project.
3: Exactly, and you know, we got a phone call, well, I actually spoke with um, our staff and said, tell me the priorities that aren't on the list to be done long-term of what needs to be done right away, and they came back and said... Upper Sherman between um, Mohawk and uh, Limeridge is a mess. So we're looking at that. It's going to be $1.2 Councillor Jackson and I are looking at sharing the cost of shave and pave on uh, Upper Gage. It has to be done. It has to be done. But we are so far in debt, and we are spending money foolishly. And it bugs me, and it's only 25000 here or 150000 there, but it adds up. And then we turn around and have the nerve to say, oh, it's only we're only asking uh, ratepayers for an extra 60 bucks this year to, to help, um, you know, deal with the potholes. Well, we shouldn't have to. That money is there. How are we spending it and where are we wasting it? Well, There's an awful lot of waste at council. What bothers an me
1: about lot. this too is is where that money comes from. I mean this whole idea about about where that money, the $1.7 million, it comes from, from well for from me for instance, and the audacity of some of the councillors, and I've talked to councillor before about this because he does a participatory budget, uh, and and this is kind of like a, 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 a double dipping. I mean, because you know, as a downtown guy, I mean, he gets a lot of money thrown into the downtown anyway, over mm-hmm. and above that. But mm-hmm. that doesn't preclude him from having to spend the rest of the money on infrastructure, and that doesn't happen to the degree that it should. But for Councillor Johnson to suggest at the meeting on Wednesday that look at this is not just a Ward One road, everybody in the city drives, and I pay for that already. I, I live in Ancaster, Donna. Where do you think the money? Where do you think the one point seven came from? It comes from my taxes, from the people in Flamborough, from the people in Stony Creek. We're already—that's our money that he's spending, and he's not doing it on infrastructure.
3: Exactly, not one dime. How is that possible? How is that possible? And I—well, I'm sure the people that got money—I'm
1: sure all the people that got money from all the little projects that they liked think the guy's fabulous. That's great, but that's not what it was intended for. You know, I, the the analogy I used the other day when I was talking to Sam Rule about this, I said that's like you know your roof's falling in. You say I think i to go buy a flat screen TV. You don't do that.
3: No, and and the other problem is, and we are you know whether you like them or not, we have expanded our bicycle our, our cycling program in the sense that we have more bike lanes. Um, and I simply ask, that's fine, but what are the statistics? How many people are actually using them? Everybody wants them, and they say if you build them, they will come. But I have, and I'm sure you've heard many, many, many stories where people say, I've seen the lane, it's been there for X amount of years, and I've never seen a a bicycle on it. And uh, so let me know, is it worth the investment? And if not, maybe there's something that we should be looking at. We're putting money in things because of social engineering and pressure on Twitter and pressure from the vocal minority And we're not dealing with basic, basic needs. And what is it at the expense of all of these other projects and programs that we have uh, expanded? Uh, I think that this city has got to realize, and our council has to realize, that we have to provide the basics. And we, how dare we go back to our taxpayer and say, we need more money to do our job because we're wasting it.
1: You know, there's going to be a list, and when you guys get to the public works uh, budget, uh, you you mentioned the priority list, and the the staff's going to come back and they're going to say, look at these, they say 12 projects, I don't know how many they're going to be, that we can do this year because of the money that's being allocated, And, and you'll have to have a look at that and you'll okay that. But you know there's probably about another 50 on that list that they aren't going to get to. This money that goes through boards one through eight was supposed to address those other 50, and say, oh, you know what, you can do Upper Sherman now. It's not on your, your, first, your top 12, but here's the money for it out of this. Not for these other little pet projects. And, and I've got a real problem with this, but I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Council Marula the other day. Why do you let your colleagues get away with this? Because it still has to go to Council for approval, and everybody just gives a thumbs up when that happens.
3: Because there is a certain group of people, I'd say, in the city that wield a tremendous amount of power, and when their projects come before council, people just allow it to go through. And that is reality in the city of Hamilton. It happens all the time. You've seen it, I'm sure, when you were there. I see it all the time. And we just let this stuff go through. Area rating funds should be spent on infrastructure. That's what it was for. There should be no excuses. It shouldn't be spent on anything else. We are in a mess. We have a, a deficit of you know, in the in the hundreds of millions of dollars that we need to address uh, in terms of trying to repair and upgrade our roads, and we are spending money that we don't have on projects that should never have been approved, but we don't have the guts to say no. When is that, that going to happen? This? I mean,
1: that, isn't that your job as an elected official to say no when no is required?
3: Yeah. It is, and then you have, you know, this little bit of pushback, and I keep going back to social media, but that's what it's on, and people are afraid, and it, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous, you know. Um, I hope I hope people like you, I hope the media keeps uh, a little bit of pressure on us, but we have to stop spending infrastructure money on projects that aren't infrastructure-related. Well, I've been
1: going on like this for four years, and, and not too many people are paying attention. I know that, that Andrew wrote about it in his column at the SPEC today, and that's great. Uh, but, but there's got to be a consistent, loud voice about this, and I, I just, I, I, it's a slush fund. I mean, I know the council doesn't like that term, but it, that's exactly what it is, and that's what it's used as. And especially, I find it galling, on an election year like this, to go around to different community groups and simply say, what do you guys want, what do you need? What a great way to curry favor on an election there. Absolutely. If, if the, the, this is the one year, uh, an election year, where well, that money should not be available to any councilor. It should simply go to infrastructure projects, period, end of sentence, and Perhaps. let staff determine that.
3: Perhaps a percentage of that money should be removed and spent at the discretion of the public works people in in um, cooperation with the councillor on roads. Period. Seventy five percent on roads, and we could address a lot of issues in the city. It's a lot of money. If every year we spend one point two of our one point seven million on roads, we'd get a lot done.
1: All right, you said. And you've spoken up about this, and you've said that you think it's about time we did something differently. Sam Rula said the same thing when I hit him on earlier this week. Am I to expect, then, that I'm going to hear those sorts of voices around the table during budget session this year?
3: Oh, well, I did raise it this week. Um, I, I challenged, you know, Councillor Johnson and then asked him how much he had spent, and that's when he admitted or shared with us that it was nothing on roads. Um, if I bring forward a motion, Bill, will you second it?
1: <laughs> I'd have to be elected to do that, and that's not happening, Donna. Sorry. <laughs> not going there. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt, well, maybe, and that's it's it. it's
3: time to have a motion that you know we, we really do away with um, the latitude in deciding and, and defining what um, infrastructure is and what that money can be used for, and maybe we stick to what it was meant for in the first place.
1: Yeah, well, I'm going to tell you, and you you know as well as I do, Don, I I, I see the same pushback on social media, and I'll probably get it again after we have this conversation this morning, but I can tell you right now that there's an awful lot more people that live in Ancaster, Dundas, Stony Creek, uh, and and other that are contributing to that fund that would rather see that money spent on roads instead of other projects. They, They may not get on Twitter and say so, but you know darn well that that's how they're thinking.
3: I mean, you know how bad our access up the mountain is. Yeah. We have to deal with that. We're going to have to find the funds. Where it's it's a piecemeal type of approach right now. It can't sustain itself. We have to. I still believe wholeheartedly, although I, I can't seem to get consensus, I believe Rymel Road should be five lanes when there's a problem on the link, the Red Hill, or the 403. If you had Rymel through the Garner right out to um, uh, fifty Highway 52, you would have uh, a an arterial road that could handle any sort of that um, uh, backlog of traffic if there's an accident. And there are accidents all the time on the 403 east and westbound. We need to start thinking about doing what has to be done. But there is uh, a very, you know, left-leaning view on council that forget roads, forget drivers, forget anybody that doesn't live in the downtown core. It's all about um, you know, getting people, which is great, getting them out of cars. There are things that we can do. But in the meantime, we, knew, we do have roads, and we do have people who have to go to work who cannot use a bus because the bus doesn't take them to their job. We have to provide safe roads, for them to use well I've heard and it from two I've job. heard it
1: from two of you on council uh, this week I'd like to hear about seven others chime in with the same thing Donna you got to get back to your meeting we have to do a break thanks so much for this and hopefully this will this will be a catalyst for that conversation thanks for the time today take care Ward seven counselor Donna Skelly uh, you heard Sam Rule earlier this week say the same thing call your counselor if you live in the city if you live in wards one through eight Ask them, where are they spending that $1.7 million? Are they trying to fix the roads? I mean, every one of them, every one of them are going to be quoted in the paper and on this radio station over the next little while saying, we have an infrastructure deficit. Spend the money that you've got and fix it. Is it that difficult to understand?
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.